John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. You have accessed the Omnibus Addenda, Volume 3. Entry 1306.ES0609, Certificate Number 9509, Ticker Tape Parades. Now, in the entry on Ticker Tape Parades, we mentioned both Samuel Morse, Mm -hmm. because we were talking about... Uh, you know, the advent of ticker tape, mass communication and where, where the ticker tape came from. Right. And we also talked about the Marquis de Lafayette what? because it was his, it was his arrival. He did some kind of uh reunion it was tour. His, it was his, yeah, it was his return to the United States, his celebrated return, uh, where the, the ticker tape parade made its debut. But uh, apparently we did not mention the interesting connection between Samuel F.B. Morse and the Marquis de Lafayette. How could we have missed it? The apparently, you know, there were very few celebrities back then. Right. And they all intermarried. They all knew each other. And a listener named Dieter reminded us that Morse, you know, in addition to an inventor, was better known in his time as a painter. Oh. And he had painted a portrait of the Marquis de Lafayette and was very flattered by the commission and actually became friends with uh, with Lafayette. A, a portrait where Lafayette sat for the portrait. Not yes. just one that he painted out of his imagination. Yes. I presume it was during an American visit. The portrait shows Lafayette in front of a sunset with three pedestals of Franklin, Washington, and an empty one. Oh, who goes there? Obama. Uh-huh. No, uh, I think the idea is that Theodore would be, Roosevelt. <laughs> right. The idea, yeah, there, was, there were not enough presidents for Mount Rushmore yet. <laughs> Mount Rushmore was just... George Washington at the time. Right. Uh, no, I think the idea was that that would, the implication is that's Lafayette himself. Oh. Perhaps Franklin and Washington have already passed on. But it feels like it's going to end up being Lincoln. I'm oh. afraid. I'm afraid. So temporarily it'll be Lafayette. Yeah. Keep it empty. That's good. You never know. Uh, the two men became friends during that sitting, but the story of their connection is actually a little bit sadder. Um, Morse. They tried to marry, but couldn't because it. Of the restrictions at the time? <laughs> right. Right. Uh, it was still illegal at the time. No, they, uh, Laf- uh, Lafayette, or Morse was married um, and had headed from his home to Washington, D.C. to paint Lafayette. And while he's doing the painting, I assume this is a process that 
would have taken weeks. Yes. He got a letter from his, from his, via horse messenger from his father saying that your wife is sick. Uh-oh. Then the next day, he got a letter saying that his wife had died. Whoa. Uh, that happened fast. Right. And you, maybe you can tell in the painting that, uh, you know, where he was when he got the bad news. I don't know. So he immediately returned to Connecticut. He left the portrait unfinished. And by the time he gets home, of course, there had been a delay of some number of days to even get those messages to him by Speedy Horse. And his wife had been buried by the time he got home. My goodness. So you can see that, the you know, the the lack of modern communication was not just inconvenient. In this case, it was tragic. And then he went back to D.C. and no one had been feeding Lafayette and he was dead. <laughs> Uh, but so this is the story that inspires Morse to figure out a way to get messages between cities that would be faster than a horse because he felt this very personally. Sacre bleu. Well, uh, Morse is not French in this story. Uh, quel dommage. <laughs> Do you think it's his, his friendship with Lafayette has, let, has turned him into the chef from Little Mermaid? <laughs> <laughs> what a loss. Uh, that's, uh, that's insane. I mean, that's incredible. Well, it's it's very interesting that he was so personally invested in his invention. You know, you think of inventors as maybe kind of cold men of science who one night think, aha, what if the electrode pointed the other direction? Or what if the magnetic coil were used in this other field? But in this case, he, he what he had was a deep sense of loss that he had not been at his wife's bedside. And was he a tinkerer before that? Was Was Morse just like sitting around like putting paper clips together and inventing cow magnets and whatnot? Or, uh, or was this, what did he put down his brush and, and pick up a, a, a pair of crimps? I feel like he had not done any scientific work. I mean, his first patent was the telegraph wow. in 1847. So he was just a painter who had a bad day. Wow. And that's, I guess that's all it takes to turn you into a, a man of science. I'm surprised he didn't in, try to invent a faster horse. Like what uh. if, like, what if he had um, immediately gone back to the drawing board and produced these amazing steampunk robot horses? The thing is, people have been trying to invent a faster horse for generations. No one... That's what, that used to be the expression. Instead of build yeah. a better mousetrap. It's like build a faster horse. Make a faster horse. robot horse. Right. But he, so he did the Gordian knot thing where instead of working away at that problem, he, he right. cuts the robot he horse cut in the half baby in two. And, uh, and, and worked around the problem. By, with a series of electric relays. Imagine if if uh, Mrs. Morse hadn't caught ill, how potentially much longer it would have been before um, before there was long distance communication. You can never know, right? We might still, even in the age of jet travel, be sending our messages via horse. But what if Mrs. Morse? turned out to be an even more gifted inventor. And by saving her life, All right. he changed history in such a way that she invented nuclear fusion in the mid-19th century. And Mrs. Then, Morse is a Mrs. Morse, of course, of course. <laughs> and, uh, and no one can report her death on a horse, of course. Entry 1000ES0905. Certificate number 42869. The Protocols of the Elders of Zion. Now, when we talked about this, this famous, this landmark anti-Semitic pamphlet, uh, you, your contention was that this was not just the birth of modern anti-Semitism, but also the birth of modern conspiracy theorizing, mm. right? Like, if the world does not flatter your viewpoint, invent a fantasy construct that does flatter it. 
Right. Who who was it that said that if the I think it was Disraeli or uh yeah, who said if the the Jew did not exist, uh conspiracy theorists would have to invent one. That's or what, anti-Semites would have to invent one. That's what I said about Pizzagate. Right. If pizza did not exist, then conspiracy theorists would have to invent it to to explain what you know, how Hillary Clinton is is molesting children in the DC suburbs. Uh her it, emails. With her emails. No. In the course of the episode, we uh, talked about our individual favorite conspiracy theories, and I aired my conviction mm-hmm. that penny-crushing machines are a huge hoax. You said, I remember, you said penny-crushing machines are a huge hoax. What are the odds that, that this machine is actually turning a circular penny into an odd ellipse shape? To me, very low. I, if I were inventing such a machine, if I were... Samuel Morse or his super intelligent inventor wife, uh, I would simply have a series of pre-pressed pennies that come out of a secret compartment at the back of the machine, oh. thus saving me from the trouble of doing it in real time. Sneaky. You know, it's against the law, too, to deface uh, American currency. I think if that's only true. People say that, but if I remember right, it's only true if you're doing it for the purposes of, of deception. If you have some innocent reason to deface American currency, like I see. to give George Washington a more flattering hairline. Right, or to write, this uh, this timber dollar uh, <laughs> right. pays, pays your salary or whatever on it. <laughs> do you do that? Is that? Are you the one doing that? <laughs> Every time I go up into some northwest mountain town and buy a pack of gum at a little grocery store, I always get dollars back that have, or used to at least, that had big stencils on them that were like timber dollars back when, when there was some still some semblance of belief that the timber industry was, was this uh, American institution that we were going to all work to save. You still see that if you go an hour outside of Seattle, you will see posters and billboards about healthy working forests. And what that means is please cut down our forests or, or our whole County is out of its job. Screw your little owl. Exactly. Screw your owl. Screw your uh, recycled park benches made out of milk cartons. Um, please, for the love of God, let us cut down more trees. Timber dollars. And what they clap, don't realize clap, is that clap, clap, no clap. one is paying attention except for those of us who are going up there to ski. I mean, for one thing, nobody, no young people are handling cash anymore anyway. Right. They're not going to see that. What their, the hell is a timber dollar anyway? Their Apple wallet has no timber dollars. <laughs> I'm sure I'm sure a person young enough would go like, oh, timber dollars. Oh, that's cool. I wonder what. Does that allow me to buy timber? Well, that's my voice of a young person. <laughs> that's, that's how they sound. Timber dollars. <laughs> so uh, apparently, we had our our correspondent Sparky, who occasionally sends us postcards. Sure, from, hi Sparky from his journeys to America and beyond. Right, I, I think he was in Central America last time we heard from him. What has Sparky got to say this time? He uh, took my contention very seriously and wanted to bring the scientific method to bear on uh-huh. my idea that penny crushing machines are a huge hoax. Okay, because he is apparently a fan of. of- of penny crushing machines and the crushed pennies they produce. Oh, he's one of these guys that decided instead of collecting spoons or thimbles or or uh, or shot glasses, or bezoars, he was going to get a uh, he was going to get a crushed penny everywhere he saw a machine. Uh, and in fact, uh, he mentions your point about the possible legality of these machines. Oh, I see. Okay, says he had heard that you could not do them in Canada because Canada has stricter uh, currency tampering laws but he did enclose a picture of the the first penny pressing machine he finally discovered in canada at the calgary tower calgary tower famous tower in calgary maybe canada's second most popular tower after the 
CN Tower in Toronto. And uh, and this one actually comes with penny tokens you you insert. Oh, so you can't destroy a Canadian penny. You you destroy a a, a, a yes. uh, fake penny. So this seems to actually support his contention that in Canada, at least, this is legal. The machine he sends us pictures of, incidentally, does have a big thing on the front. As most of them do, saying, "Is it legal?" And uh, the claims on these machines often say, "I mean, this this sticker is not a lawyer, John." Sure. But it does say, "Yes, it is legal to elongate coins under Section three three one, Title eighteen. It's illegal only if someone fraudulently mutilates the coin." I see. So if you're not trying to put anything over on anyone by making coins that have Monticello Monticello on them, right? Then apparently you're in the clear. You know what's interesting about this, and I, I discovered this uh, a few years ago when marijuana was first legalized here in Washington State. I made the contention, and it immediately became very popular. It's very popular. This thing that no one had tried. But I made that. I, so I made that argument uh, online. I said anyone who wanted to try marijuana tried it a long time ago. No one was dissuaded by it being illegal, and I got a like a very surprising outpouring of letters and responses from people. People who wanted to saying, I always was curious that- about pot, but I wasn't going to do it because it was illegal. Huh. And I got so many of these replies that I realized they were all coming from the same man. <laughs> no, that, that people truly, there is a group of, uh, and a very large section of the American people that are law abiding and we're curious, but we're like, why would I try that? It's illegal. That's interesting because I break laws routinely. Yes. You know, I'll just jaywalk. It doesn't matter. Like, but I am squeamish about putting some new psychoactive thing in my body. I'm the opposite of these people. Sure. I mean, you, you, even if the law made it, your taxes, even if the law and, made it mandatory right? to smoke weed, you kill a guy once a week. I would become a conscientious objector. And, and move to Canada just to avoid smoking weed because they don't have any up there. No, no, no. They don't smoke weed in Vancouver, Canada. Ha- Vancouver is, is cannabis they're, yeah, free. They're famously uh, against all kinds of any kind of intoxicant, really. What our friend Sparky did in the interest of, of uh, trying to decide if penny crushing machines have ever actually crushed a penny in the moment. Right. Uh, is that uh, he went to a nearby conveniently located penny crushing machine mm-hmm. at the Boston Museum of Science actually in Cambridge, not Boston. And before he did that, he brought some pennies, one of which he had coated with a red chemical called dicum. Am I saying this right? Hmm. I'm sure I would pronounce it dicum. Well, it's it's a problem either way, because it's D-Y-K-E-M. Oh, I would say dicum. You can get canceled either way with this word. Oh, I see. Uh, but it's it's not a paint. Uh, dicum is a metalworking fluid that, um, that can stain things, but you can remove it with like... Isopropyl with paint thinner. Or yeah, I've seen it. I've seen it in alcohol. action. Sure. Yeah. So, because he didn't want to gum up the machine, so he took some pennies, coated them with this red coating, and ran them through the machine. He first put in a test penny just to see what happened, and the machine spit out. So he sent us a series of pictures so we can see every moment of his test. He sent us a, a series of pictures. Yeah, and, we, and we'll put some of these on the Patreon feed. Those are real photographs. Here are the pennies. Okay. Here's the dike. I'm ready to go. Sure. Here's the pennies once they've been coated. Once it's dried, you can see Abe Lincoln, but now he's red. Sparky, you're really a nut. He was from a, Lincoln was from a red state. He was from Kentucky. Mm-hmm. Uh, then here's the, the the Cambridge, Massachusetts machine. I he's, see it. It looks, like the, it looks like the bridge of a ferry boat. Here's the sticker with the legality. He shows right. us putting in his normal penny with its two quarters. He's, he is proving this to, within a, uh, to the nth degree. I feel like we're doing this in real time with him. Yeah. Here's him cranking the uh, wheel. And here's the penny, the uh, squished, shiny penny. Does it have dicum on back. it? 
No, he he started with a test with a oh, control penny. Okay, this is the one that could, in fact, just be coming out of the machine, unrelated to. Yes, and it, as you would expect, it comes out. I can't tell what this is. It's either some kind of streptococcus bacteria. Maybe it's a lobster. Yeah, the the famous uh, Boston streptococcus. Why uh, would the Boston Museum of Science have a lobster? Design. It is a lobster. It is, right? Consider it. It is a lobster. Consider the lobster. It is a lobster, and they, uh, you know, in New England, uh, they have so little to be proud of. Yeah, by law, everything has to have a lobster. Yeah, it's just like, well, what have we got? We have the lobster, (laughs) and we had like Paul Revere. So either we put Paul Revere or a lobster on it. That's all that they have. They have Marky Mark now as well. Paul Revere, Marky Mark, and the lobster, the the noble lobster. Uh, One one lobster if by land, two lobsters if by sea. What else do they have? What else did Boston ever give the world? It's really nothing when you think about it. Harvard. <laughs> Harvard Yard. Um, Kennedy's. Oh, the band Boston. Wait, oh, wait a minute. Where Aerosmith. There we go. Aerosmith. Finally, Boston has justified its existence. Sure. They've finally given us something wicked awesome. Let me ask you this. Do the Patriots negate Aerosmith? <laughs> I'm going to put that on Twitter today and we'll see what we get. Marky Mark has negated Ben Affleck. For sure. We're, we're even now. Yeah, but that leaves Matt Damon. <laughs> it does. Right? The, those two can cancel each other out. Matt Damon Matt is Damon considerably survives. less Bostonian than Ben Affleck. He's like 30% less Boston. Oh, don't tell him that. Okay, so now we come to, this is the very exciting moment for Sparky. He now puts in the red dicumed penny with two quarters okay. into, into the slot. Oh, this costs him 50 cents a pop. Yeah, he is, well, plus whatever the dicum costs, uh, the train to the museum, the postage... I feel like we need to reimburse him. Uh, he's turning the wheel again. You can actually see the the motion here. It's this is this Action is nice work. Shot. He has gone to Costco and printed up. Oh no, he used Snapfish. Never mind. <laughs> he went online and he printed up physical prints of this. And guess what comes out in the hopper, John? A squished, a, an elongated lobster penny. But this time, Daikin coated, covered with red. So a lot of these machines allow you to uh, pick one of a half a dozen different little emblems. I think most of them do. And he just... He, he Twice, either, for science. He either did lobsters both times. Oh, my goodness. So where is the actual... Where are these coins? Look at that. And somehow the dicum didn't really get... I would think that as the coin got stretched, the dicum also would get stretched but or i mean i'm sorry that it wouldn't get stretched it would reveal it doesn't crack copper underneath it but no it just went right with the right with the coin oh i guess i could i he did send us the actual item so i could have looked at it yeah it just says boston in the upper left and then there's a picture of a lobster <laughs> nothing about the museum uh, or about american independence lobster on the back it does say museum of science mos Don't worry, but he sent us one the clean elongated lobster penny right and then a pre a pre a dicum pre crushed penny. Okay, and then the elongated red. The Each crucial one in its own specimen bag. Of all the people in your life who have never given us one red cent, this guy gave us two red cents. He's our biggest fan. My God! But I'm going to adjust my conspiracy theory at this point. Okay. Clearly, the machine not only has pre elongated pennies to dispense, but it has some way of determining the color and state of the penny you enter. So it can produce a tricked-up red penny when necessary. That's how. That's how cunning. Uh, huh. Our our masters, our puppet masters, our penny crushing puppet masters are. Like all good 
uh, conspiracy theories, yours just gets more and more bonkers whenever real evidence is presented. Exactly. I see. Mine, uh, it doesn't double down. It doesn't deny facts. It merely adapts to them. Entry 540.PS5506. Certificate number 20913. The Gossamer Albatross. Now, this is just an erratum. Is that, what, is that the singular mm-hmm. erratum? That's what I would say, erratum. Erotica. Um, we have one singular erratum, but a major one. Uh, we mentioned Gina Yeager, the aviator who, with uh, Bert Rattan, uh, was in the cockpit, I believe, for the world's first, uh, what, circumnavigation of the globe by, is it? Monkeys. <laughs> by monkeys. Uh, no, the Rattan Voyager by uh, what, some kind of glider. Was right. it solar or was it just a the Rattan, it flew, Okay, the first time to fly around the world without refueling. Without refueling, right? And in this case, it was the Rattan Voyager, which was just very efficient. It's it's not solar and it's not a glider. It, it is powered. It is powered, but it is uh, it's. You know, it was a high altitude craft that that uh, very lightweight, yeah, big um, big big wing, and uh, and flew you know largely on its own. Uh, it, you know, it kept aloft mostly because of its design, it's not because of its its uh, power. Exactly right. It took off from Edwards Air Force Base in December 1986, and. And touched down at the same airfield nine days later. And I guess both of them piloted it. But yeah, nine days, you can't. Right. Can't just you, have you, one you pilot two pilots. and one uh, uh, air hostess. So, so Jeannie Yeager, not the air hostess, the, uh, the co-pilot, um, I mistakenly misremembered as a relative of Chuck Yeager. Right. As, as you would. Two people named Yeager setting 20th century aviation records as you would maybe <laughs> as one would you don't like me justifying my mistakes but there is in fact they are in fact completely unrelated isn't that interesting uh yeah they by by sheer coincidence although two of the most famous aviators of the century had the same last unusual last name i can't think of another single jaeger jaeger meister i know a guy named brian jaeger does he spell it with a y like that uh yeah he's um he's a uh, but he's a rock guy uh, of course we're all related, Ken. That's true. Hu- human spe- humans are all just one big family. George Washington and Barack Obama are twelfth cousins, right? So I'm sure the Jaegers are related at some level. I'm looking at an online list of other f- semi-famous Jaegers, and there are twenty of them because it comes from the German, you know, Jaeger meaning hunter. It's just anglicized with a right with y. a Y. Um, so it's, I guess it's not as unusual. And is there any other field like that where there are like two super Famous people, not related? Oh, I mean, think about all the Johnsons. I mean, Johnson and Johnson was founded by two Johnsons. Who are not related? I assume they were brothers. Oh, yeah, no. I think it's like Thompson and Thompson and Tintin. (laughs) One one of them had Band-Aids and one of them had talcum powder, and they were like, hey, you know what we should do? Uh, I guess Ingmar Bergman made an Ingrid Bergman movie. They're like three letters away from being the same person, and they're not related. related. Except to the degree, as we learned in Icelandic incest, that every Scandinavian person is kind of related. Right. We also got a correction from if we're if we're doing simple corrections. Uh, I would so- like to point out so far that all three of the uh, episodes that we're 
that we have addenda for here were all ones uh, that I th- these were all my episodes. Oh, I didn't do, even notice that. Do you not that. get criticism for your episodes? I'm good. None of this is like that critical. No, they're 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 inspired, inspired. by your quality inspired. content. Right. Too. Well, that's that's pure coincidence. But you know what? I was gonna. T- I have two more coming up that are Go also on. you. Go on. <laughs> Go on. Let's just make a whole. Let's just make a whole day of it. Here are some other things we said wrong that people have pointed out. I don't know. I hope it's you that said them wrong. Yes. Well, I don't know who said it wrong. Apparently, in the Icelandic incest entry, we referred to Iceland as a Scandinavian country. Right. And of course, it is not. Interesting. Scandinavia, strictly speaking, is a peninsula of Norway and Sweden, but weirdly, Denmark, which is its own peninsula elsewhere. I don't know why you would include Denmark. Um, Because they're Scandinavians, just like the Icelandic people. Uh, So maybe Iceland isn't Scandinavia, but the Icelanders are Scandinavians. They are, in fact, Nordic people. If you add Finland and Iceland, those are the Nordic Nordic countries. Nordic countries. So wait a minute. So... The Finns aren't Scandinavian either. No, just because they have a big cross on their flag. I see. And they're extremely white. So Scandia. Fashionable uh, eyeglasses. It's like calling, um, it's like calling, what is it like calling? It's like, well, I was going to say it's like calling. Don't you uh, get mad when I say Oklahoma's the Midwest? It's like that. Uh, or, or, or saying Hawaiians are North Americans. Oh, right. right? right. Hawaiians aren't North Americans. So Scandinavia is the peninsula, but for some reason it gets the it gets the kingdom of Denmark, which is a separate peninsula, kind of butting up into the other peninsula. I'm not sure why we need to how do such I, gatekeeping of this. How have I uh, how have I not known this before that Scandinavia was considered the mandibles of <laughs> the of the strait there? Yeah, once you get across the Gulf of. Uh, what is that, Finland? Bothnia, I guess. Yeah. You are no longer in Scandinavia. Maybe maybe nobody, everybody's just been too polite to tell you. Seems weird. Like, where does Schleswig-Holstein fall into the, is that is that also Scandinavia? Where's the line drawn? At least this is a Ken episode. Uh, in the <laughs> Oblique Strategies episode, we implied that Brian Eno was posh because he's got his fancy French name. Yes. We were told that Brian Eno was not raised posh. Uh, in the Fritz Stamberger episode, I think, I said that Walter Matthau played a CIA agent in Charade. It was pointed out to me that Walter Matthau also played a CIA agent in the Glenda Jackson movie Hopscotch, Omnibus Regrets These Errors. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Entry 840.mk1009, certificate number 27256. No fault divorce. Also, one of my episodes. You uh, you bring the fans to the uh, to the yard with I their I do. with their angry or uh, appreciative emails. So far, nobody's been that angry. So no. I appreciate that. I'm the appreciative one. People love you, John. Uh, in this case, we heard from a divorced person. Yes, uh, with the that, last married person, <laughs> the last married person in America. It was me. No, we heard from uh, actually a woman with quite a, a, a sad and difficult divorce story. Oh, so, no. so maybe she will be a, an anonymous mm. uh, correspondent. Buckle up here. But huh? you know, she's doing well now after a difficult divorce. And she said, because you know, we were talking about the liberalization of divorce laws in this country. She mentioned that the only thing that got through her divorce because of the degree of uh, tension and instability in the marriage towards the end was the fact that she was living in Lincoln County, Washington. Uh, uh, Washington. Have you ever been to Lincoln County in Washington? State? Yes. It's uh, 
it's just west of Spokane. Yes. It's one of our least, most sparsely populated counties. Right. Uh, the county seat is Davenport. I've never been to Davenport, Wa. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you have. I have. Um, do you have any uh, stories about Lincoln County, Washington? And do you think there's a Washington County near Lincoln, Nebraska? I almost certainly there is. This is the Mount Rushmore of counties. You've got Lincoln. You've got Washington. You don't have an empty pedestal for Lafayette. So I do have, uh, I do have a story about Lincoln County. Is it long? Eh, it depends. How much of it do you want? <laughs> uh, m- uh, many years ago, we're talking about now 1987, I bought a, uh, a 1974 Volkswagen bus from a person from the classified ads in the, in the, uh, the Spokane newspaper. Were you, at, were you at Gonzaga at the time? I was at Gonzaga in Spokane. I bought this Volkswagen bus, and uh, it was pretty rickety bus. But I knew a guy on campus that was like, he, he said he was a Volkswagen mechanic. So I had him tinker with it. And we, we used to drive around town. Uh, every once in a while it would overheat. But that was true of a lot of air-cooled Volkswagens at the time. Uh, and then I found out that my older sister was getting married in Olympia, Washington. And my family was all going to be there. And I said, well, that's you know a good opportunity to take this Volkswagen bus on a cross-state cross road trip. Because I'd always wanted to travel across America in a Volkswagen bus. It was one of the reasons I bought this sure. bus. So I headed out from Spokane on an eve uh, the night before my sister's wedding. And I made it as far as Sprague, Washington. Sprague is in the, southern, the southeastern corner of Lincoln County. You didn't get far. I did not get far. Before the Volkswagen bus caught on fire, the engine... Did not have any, uh, it was, I think the, in fact, I think the block was probably cracked. Uh, if it wasn't before, it certainly was after the motor caught on fire. And so I pulled over and had to put out the fire. And then a, uh, a friend came from Gonzaga in his Fiat X19 and we hitched a rope to the bumper of the Fiat and a rope to the bumper of the, of the, uh, the bus. You're still thinking you can save the bus at this point. Yes. Well, I knew I couldn't just leave it on the side of the of the road. Oh, why not? It's Lincoln County. Well, what I did was we towed it to the next gas station, which in this section of Lincoln County was a long way up the road, and I didn't have any power in the bus, so the, I had no lights. And the rope that was connecting our two bumpers was only like five feet long. So we're <laughs> going at freeway speeds, and I'm in this vehicle with zero crumple zone. Just And he's a, in a Fiat, you know, just barely pulling his lung. <laughs> and I'm just desperately trying to not uh, crash, but we made it. And uh, we parked the Volkswagen there in the gas station parking lot where it remained for something like three months. And because it was in Sprague, there, the gas station never complained. There wasn't, they didn't. There were no other cars in the parking lot. Nobody used the parking It just sat there. Did you tell them what you were going to do? Yeah, yeah oh, okay. I called, no, I called him on the phone, I guess, the next day and said, That's my bus. That's my bus. I'll be back for it soon. And what was the eventual fate of the bus? Somebody else on campus who knew how to tow a vehicle behind another car with a rope a little bit better than my Fiat friend <laughs> went out there with his, uh, he had a brand new, at the time, brand new Toyota 4Runner. And we put a 20-foot rope tied to the bumper of that and drove it back to Spokane. You're like water skiing behind it. Was it was pretty crazy. 
And what was the fate of the uh, of your sister's marriage? Uh, my sister's marriage did not last. Um, Speaking of no fault divorce, although they had a they had a beautiful young son who's now a grown man and married himself. Um, he did not even marry himself. Sin, you cannot marry. Yourself. He married a, a, a lovely young lady. Uh, but no, they didn't stay married. And um, although I have a lot of stories about that, but you did make it to the wedding. I did not make it to the wedding. Oh, what if that's the thing? What if that's the first domino? That was it, huh? Yeah. That I didn't go? If, if you had just been there to show your support. Because, you know, you're, you're an influencer, John. I think that her, it was, that it was more that her husband was a drunk, lying lawyer. Mm. Uh, which is a, yeah, that's a one, two, three. You don't want the DLL. <laughs> so, in this case, Lincoln County is related to divorce in a second way, in oh. addition to your story. Go ahead. It is one of the few counties in America where uncontested divorces can happen by mail. What? No one has to appear before a judge. You just send in a letter and say, I'm, I want a divorce. Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice. <laughs> and, and that's it? Uh, it is one of the mo- because there's so few counties in America where this is possible. I think there are, it's, it's, you know, it's definitely the quickie divorce capital of Washington. Um, they receive filings statewide. Interesting. Uh, this goes back to 1983. Um, there was a judge who was convinced he would save a lot of time. So just some lazy rural judge who was tired of rubber stamping divorces in court was like, look, I could just do this in chambers. And and because it's a small county, you know, no one thought, it, you know, it just wouldn't be that big a deal. But of course, now it's Washington's go-to, these rural counties are Washington's go-to divorce destinations. And as a result, even though there's only 10,000 people, you know, Wheat farmers all probably in Lincoln County, Washington, they handle four over four thousand domestic filings a year. Really? Yes. You know, uh, more than any other county except for King County, which has you know almost two million people. Lincoln County also has the Grand Coulee Dam. Oh, interesting. So they they've got a lot of action up there in the northwest corner. So they got some dam judge signing all these dam divorces. Oh, that's exactly what it is. Uh, and uh, so every day, or let's see, every Monday. A clerk, it's like the last scene of Miracle on 34th Street. A clerk brings these giant bags. Mail sacks? Yeah, mail sacks. And dumps them out on some superior court judge's desk. And he gets writer's cramp for six hours wow. signing all these. You're divorced. You're divorced. You're divorced. <laughs> right. So how did that help our Final correspondent? Uh, well, uh, the, 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 you know, I don't want to get into details, but her relationship with her ex-spouse had gotten difficult enough that she didn't want to meet him in court yeah like he didn't you know the the spouse was okay with the divorce but was not could never have been persuaded to appear Uh, at a court appearance i see and so this was perfect were they washington residents yes washington which is also a as you've as you've mentioned several times on the omnibus it's clearly at the front of my mind for some reason community property state (laughs) (laughs) yes so our correspondent credits this with really restoring her peace of mind. So America needs to move not just to no-fault divorce, but no-fault play-by-mail right. divorce right. as well. That's wonderful. Entry 1087.1K1210. Certificate number 41003. Porfirio Rubirosa. We all remember Porfirio Rubirosa and his Pepper Grinder-esque anatomy. Right, and his his, uh, his extreme popularity uh, in his time. Uh, which he leveraged to marry the world's richest middle-aged heiresses and live More in, than a, once. in a luxurious manner. Yeah, back to back. Right. Um, 
And we got a note from a listener named Margaret, who is a Roderick on the Line fan. Margaret Ruby Rosa? <laughs> she wishes. <laughs> no. Um, uh, no relation. Uh, apparently via Back to Work. Did you, uh, did you, did you appear on the podcast Back to Work? Uh, one time, very early on, uh, somewhere along the line. Well, Not early on. Well, apparently but... she metastasized from hearing that episode. She must have been a Back to Work fan. Oh, I see. To Roderick on the line and is now a listener and a Patreon supporter. Uh, she could be listening right now of Roadwork and Omnibus et al. That's wonderful. Hello clearly, and thank you. Clearly a fan of yours. She is a book reviewer for a library and trade magazine. Like a lot of my fans. And uh, the same week she heard us talk about Porfirio Ruby Rosa and his genitalia, uh, she was reviewing a new book about Doris Duke. Oh. One of the two uh, uh, heiresses, you know, of the, of the Duke University family um, whom Porfirio married. It's called The Silver Swan. It's going to be coming out from FSG. What is that? Farrer Strauss Giro in April of this year. Uh, and she actually sent us a gal. I don't, I, I, did we just get her in trouble? Is she allowed to send us her her advanced copies? Yeah, of course. Um, I, I had a friend that used to send me that was in the book trade that sent me all their oh, I get a ton of copies, these, right? But I've never actually advertised on a public medium that I was buying and or, you know giving and receiving these. It's not like an Oscar screener, right? No, 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 no. There's no there's no uh, watermark on it that prohibits us from. I mean, all all it is is it doesn't have the final edits, right? And it's got a crappy cover. She actually marked with post-its the most Porfirio Ruby Rosa friendly portions, um, uh, talking about how Ruby Rosa actually flew back to the Dominican Republic to meet with Trujillo when he and Doris Doak became engaged. And Trujillo was delighted at the kind of uh, power and influence that could accrue to his dictatorship sure. should he, he marry this rich woman. Uh and Dor- uh, there's amazing details here. Doris Duke did not tell her family and friends that she was going to marry this Latin playboy for some reason. Uh-huh. I wonder why. Either be- because she knew there would be opposition or because there was no time. Uh, he married her, Ruby Rosa married her at the Dominican embassy in Paris. And it's possible that by doing it on Dominican soil, Ruby Rosa was believing that the Napoleonic Code, this always reminds me of Street Card and Desire. Uh-huh. In Louisiana, we have what's called the Napoleonic Code, Stella. Uh, that uh, the Napoleonic Code would grant him access to the Duke fortune, speaking of community property right. states. Um, and so she promised during the ceremony to obey her fortune. Um, unfortunately, right before the wedding, his plan was thwarted when briefcase-toting French lawyers appeared with a prenup, <laughs> overriding, overriding the, uh, the default assumptions of a marriage performed at the Dominican embassy in order to, <laughs> to leverage <laughs> the Napoleonic Code still in effect in the Caribbean. Ruby Rosa smoked cigarettes um, during the whole ceremony, extinguishing a cigarette just in time to put a golden ruby ring on her finger. Can you um, imagine how sophisticated you have to be to put your cigarette out right before you put your ring on your wife's finger? So uh, before the second wedding, she wrote to a friend that she had not been able to visit her because she had to go to a doctor for an unexplained internal problem. Mm-hmm. And Sally Bingham, the author of this autobiography, or biography, speculates that this could be the same internal problem that Ruby Rosa's first wife reported after their honeymoon. Apparently... Uh, apparently this is, you know, there are some downsides apparently to marrying the this uh, incorrigible Lothario. Latin Lothario. Is it, is it, uh, is it what? Gonorrhea? No, not venereal. Um, oh, I, I think purely 
Ouch. Purely, no, purely size-related. Ouch. Is, is what That's what I mean by is, ouch. Is the implication here. Uh, interestingly, this says she was, uh, he was much shorter than her. Doris Duke was six foot, and Ruby Rosa was only five nine. Um, in a picture of, in the photo from their second wedding, in which she's wearing a green taffeta cocktail dress, um, it says, her expression is charged with a sexuality that was their strongest link. I guess that was that was apparently all they had in common, which might be why the wedding was so short-lived. Um, it also, uh, for reasons unknown, Margaret also noted a second portion later in the book in the 1980s. It's a different wedding at which Doris Duke was there. This time, she's officiating at a mock wedding ceremony between Doran's living companion, Chandy Hefner, and the groom, Paul Rubens, better known as Pee Wee Herman. Right. <laughs> uh, her uh, companion has one attendant, Imelda Marcos. What? W- widow of the late president of the Philippines. Uh, her neck festooned with diamonds. Her stout finger, uh, Imelda's stout fingers thick with rings. She carried the bouquet the bride later threw with such abandon that it landed in the swimming pool, at which point Imelda Marcos had to fish it out. The bouquet was cactus and orchid. I don't know if that's, hmm. is that traditional? Do you think, cactus and orchid. Did Peewee? Sounds like a restaurant in Seattle. Insist, yeah, cactus and orchid. Uh, the ceremony included no vows or prayers, although Chandy chanted something about universal love. Now, apparently, I don't think this is a legal wedding. You can't marry Peewee Herman if it's just officiated by Doris Duke and Imelda Marcos. They don't they don't have any power to Really? Uh, I feel like they should. If you put me and and my betrothed in front of Imelda Marcos and Doris Duke and they performed a wedding ceremony, I would hope to be married. I think the implication here is this follows his um this follows his Sarasota porno theater arrest and Pee-wee was perhaps trying to recover his image, although I don't know if Entering into a sham marriage um, witnessed by Imelda Marcos is how I would go about, uh, you know, renovating my public image. Right. But I'd like to thank uh, Margaret for sending us an early look at this uh, Doris Duke book. Yeah, thank you, Margaret. Once again, Omnibus is ahead of the curve. And thanks for listening, Margaret, to all the shows. Entry 546.mk0639. Certificate number 31632. Grass. Finally, a Tuesday show. Yeah, the por- uh, Porfirio uh, was also, oh, that's true. also one that's of your true. shows. So you, we started to even out. I'm pulling it out. We I, we got a note from a uh, listener named Christopher. We talked about uh, you know how grass, how lawns are by far America's biggest crop. Right. Biggest and, crop and, and, and source kind of, of a lot of pollution. Ecological menace, exactly. A, a lot of uh, waste of water. Uh, and we got a note from Christopher Brenna from Rochester, Minnesota, who told us he was delighted to hear us badmouth grass because he kills lawns. Yeah. <laughs> just, just he's a mean guy. It's who goes a, around, a lawnacost. He goes around pouring dicum <laughs> on his neighbor's front lawns. <laughs> what? How do you get a job that where you're the lawn killer. Uh, he's uh, he's something called, he's the chief facilitator. He's some kind of... Uh, of uh, Some big mucky muck. Muckety muck at an outfit called Revolutionary Earth, um, which Revolutionary Earth Farm, whereby... Revolutionary Earth Farm. 
It's a it's a Minnesota nonprofit. I guess homeowners, or maybe it's is it a nonprofit? Homeowners donate their backyards. You know, they donate their lawns. Sure, and they have. Christopher has a volunteer labor corps that donate works. the use of their lawns. I'm guessing that they don't actually give the they title give, to the they land. They don't give the real estate, but they do give the lawn itself okay. because the grass goes away. A volunteer labor corporation kills the lawn, digs it up, and plants charity gardens. It is a nonprofit. Oh, he started. He's the founder of this nonprofit, Revolutionary Earth Farm, and uh, and then they plant charity gardens and distribute the food to uh, needy people in the area. That's wonderful. So it's a great idea. So not only are they getting rid of this awful land sink, water sink, uh, the eyesore that is a beautiful verdant green lawn, but what they end up with is beans and tomatoes and zucchini, whatever you can grow in Rochester, Minnesota. Which is everything. I I mean, I think everything. That's the thing. Minnesota is one of those places. The Midwest is where you get the most fertile land and also the hugest, flattest backyards that people are mowing with. Little lawn, so tractors. it's perfect. You could get it like is. a full acre of uh, of summer squash. The only downside is that if you are somebody with a big flat backyard, you probably don't want a bunch of hippies farming beans in your backyard. So you have to be somebody well, that's like Minnesota is some place that would have an overlap between right. you know moneyed people in a nice suburb, suburb and yet uh, you know have never heard an NPR show they don't like. Right, Minnesota Public Radio being the Greatest of all public radios. And so these these are probably, you know, it's probably not unlike Seattle. A lot of progressive suburban do-gooders who are like, hey, yeah. Hey, wait a minute. You could be growing beans back here. I guess the problem is if the needy in Rochester, Minnesota don't want beans. Well, you know what? The needy are going to get what they got coming to them yeah. from the lawn revolution society rochester beggars can't be rochester choosers yo anyway christopher encourages uh anyone who wants to support his nonprofit to look up revolutionary earth farm well let's get this going we this should be in every city in america sure we, should, we support it john and i will personally help plow up your backyard and uh Boy, be careful what you promise and plant raspberries think about all the people in seattle who are like ken and john are going to come over and plow up my yard they're going to take out my blackberries we're i'll just ta- i'll replant it every year we're not taking out your blackberries folks one lucky contest winner Gets uh, one lucky Patreon donor. <laughs> That's right. What's the Patreon <laughs> the $100 level? One hundred dollar level. What's the level that gets us to come plow up your lawn? <laughs> Entry zero three nine dot ez four seven zero five. Certificate number three six six three four. The Ambassador Bridge. Another another Thursday show. Yep, closing it out. Now we heard a lot about the Ambassador Bridge. The uh, connection between uh detroit and ontario windsor uh which is in fact kind of a linchpin of american trade and yet is privately owned privately owned and sort of uh sort of uh, busted ass and we heard a lot of we heard a lot of detroiters who had strong feelings about uh mr maroon hmm. is that how it is the, well, lo- the and local a, entrepreneur who, and a lot of canadians also chimed in well okay that's the first kind of comment we got jesse uh irritated that we referred to detroit michigan but windsor canada oh this windsor, is, i remember canada this. windsor canada we did not, not say windsor, windsor ontario. ontario and that implies that there's some lack of parity between u.s states because right. we said detroit michigan and canadian provinces because we refused to say windsor ontario we implied that uh, you know, we put, it seems like we put Canada on the level of a U.S. state. 
Right. And we only, to be fair, we only did that for one reason because Canada effectively is a state, a U.S. state, state, the 51st state, (laughs) a state level entity in our minds. There are 10 (laughs) provinces. And 50 states. Right. And a few territories. But every, well, that's right. The, the territories, of course. But, um, but so what that effectively means is that every province, leaving out the territories for a moment, every province is, uh, is as equivalent to five U.S. states. I mean, Canada has the population roughly of California, has a population and economy roughly the size of, of California. The territories being uh, the Northwest Territory and is Nunavut a uh, Territory. Yes, yeah. there are three now, Yukon yeah. and, and Nunavut. Are we saying that right? Nunavut, I think, yeah. Yeah, I, I studied the province a lot, but of course I remember none of it. Right, of course. Uh, so, anyway, so Ontario, which is, um, you know, there's a town in North Ontario. <laughs> that's what I hear. Uh, but also... There is a town. <laughs> that's the most populous of the provinces, Ontario. And you know what? If I, I would not think it was weird if somebody said Toronto, Ontario. Toronto, Canada actually does seem a little odder to me than Toronto, Ontario. So I get where Jesse's coming from. Right. Do you, doesn't Toronto, Canada sound a little odd to your ears? No, you hear it. Toronto, Canada? Toronto, Canada. I guess. The problem is, Jesse, York, that we are recording this in the United States. Right. So we use our own domestic uh, uh, appellation and nomenclature and subdivisions when we say Detroit, Michigan. We would not say Detroit, USA, because coming from within the USA, that would sound odd. Yeah, but I but I take issue with that at a different level because you do say Paris, France. Sure. You do say London, England. <laughs> now, if I recall, you answered in detail. Oh, did Jesse, I? didn't you? Oh, I, maybe I did. I and you were like, in. Jesse, do you say Guadalajara, Jalisco, or, or, <laughs> right, or whatever? Oh, right, of course I did. I was like, do you say Paris, seventeenth uh, uh, arrondissement, Ile de France, or wherever Paris? No, of is? course you don't, Jesse. Right. Ding dong. But you say Beijing, China. But Canadians do prefer that we labor under this illusion that there is actually perfect equivalency between the United States and Canada. Right. One is just a little colder. Right, of course. You would say, I mean, you do say Vancouver, British Columbia here in Seattle. We do say It's true. That. We would never say Vancouver, Canada. Well, well no, you say yeah, that yeah, all I guess the time, Vancouver, say. Canada. Uh, you, but, but you would, you but Vancouver, say, B, Vancouver, BC sounds a little more typical to us you, yeah. as a regional Vancouver, thing. Because right. we're differentiating it between Vancouver, Washington and Vancouver, BC. There are two. That's true. Right? And Windsor, there are quite a few Windsors, like Windsor Castle. I guess one argument you could make is we are, po- we are opposing it to Windsor, UK. Right. The, probably the more famous. The more famous of the two. Municipality called Unless Windsor. Unless you're a Canadian, in which case you're like, no, Windsor, Canada is the They most- can't say that. Their, their head of state lives there. That's right. Th- that would be disrespectful. That's right. To, to the queen, if they were to pretend that Windsor... Ontario were the were the preeminent Windsor in the world. I think this has to do more with a, a certain kind of Canadian butthurt sensitivity about how they are referred to by Americans, and they're not wrong. Well, we we we, we do not. Uh, one of the things I like to say or stipulate is that Canadians are wrong. <laughs> they're just plain wrong. What the heck? I um, what the hey? I think I am on the record on this program as saying that Canada is not a country. It's a it's an inferiority complex with a currency. You're the one that's that is constantly like razzing the 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 Canadian the Toronto Blue Jays. Recently, when I was on, when I was on uh, on Jeopardy, I actually did hear from someone on Twitter saying, "I hope you lose because you were mean to Blue Jays fans." Yeah, yeah, you were mean to the Canadian Blue Jays, and I was delighted. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they play all their games in Toronto, Canada, and then they come to <laughs> Seattle, Washington, and it pisses me off. <laughs> 
Another note we got about the Ambassador Bridge was from Neil Booth, who uh, took issue with our contention that 12 hours is a long time to wait to cross an international border. Oh. Neil is a veteran of the Kazungula border crossing. Oh, I thought he was going to be a veteran of a thousand psychic wars. I was going to say, what's up? Fist bump. You can be the veteran of several things. Yeah. Uh, we don't know about his psychic war record, but he has crossed at Kazungula between Zambia and Botswana. And he's Southern saying Africa. that this was longer than a 12-hour wait. It's a difficult crossing. There are two... It's a major transcontinental highway. This is like the main drag between Zambia and Botswana, apparently. And so a lot of freight travels on it. The problem is the crossing does not have a bridge merely... What would that be? Zambia and Botswana? It's probably the Zambezi? Mm. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. But uh, here, you look that up, John. Mm-hmm. Find out about Kazung- Kazungula while I talk about it. Um, the problem is there is no bridge there. There's merely two small ferries going back and forth. Oh. And they can only take one truck at a time. Sure, the Kazungula Ferry is right here. It's very close to Victoria Falls. Oh, so it is on the Zambezi. It is. It's um, It's just right there. You know, like the, that's the next the next town up the road there, Livingstone. Um, I presume. And it, uh, yeah, it seems like that is, that's the, uh, that's the, where the M10 I like how they have they have over. highways with British nomenclature. They do, yeah. Well, <laughs> Brit- so Britain took over Africa just so they could have someone to play cricket with and use their stupid highway letters. The A33 goes from Nagoma to uh, Kasane to Milton Keynes. I would, you know what? I wouldn't cross over there if I were you. I'd uh, I'd I'd go further up the road, but you know, that's just me. Would you go to the uh, waterfall? Oh, I see what the problem is. Would you is, go over right? the waterfall in a barrel? I uh, over <laughs> over Victoria Falls in a barrel. I think what's happening is they're they're driving down to Ndola, uh, Zambia, Ndola, Ndola, and uh, that is actually the directest route. Right? So because there's only two small ferries on here, they can each take a, a truck at a time. So the wait will often be about a week. Oh no! Just to get across Come the river. Come on, there's got to be a way you could drive around a week long wait to cross this river. Well, put it in, instructions into Google. Maps and then say no tolls <laughs> and, see, <laughs> and see how long it takes you to get across the mighty Zambezi. Neil says he was there once in 2014 uh, at the time when one of the ferries was down for repairs. This happens in Washington State all the time. But at that time, the wait was literally four weeks what? to get trade across. This is why we are the world didn't work. It takes it takes four weeks just to get just to get uh, food across an African border. Right. We are. We are your um, unmitigated peak. Let's see here. I'm going to say I'm in Oh, I was Lusaka. just joking. Are you actually going to do this? Yeah, I'm going to say I'm in Lusaka. Eating Lusaka. Lusaka, Zambia. And I want to go to... Um, I'm going to drive down here to... Well, I don't want to go... To Zimbabwe. I want to go to Gabrone. You really don't want to go to Zimbabwe. Ga- Gabrone, by the way, correct answer Gabrone. given by a clutch correct answer given by James Holtzauer in the Jeopardy game he won. Oh, that's right. Me. And this uh, this is saying that, oh, no, that's those are walking directions. If you wanted to do that, uh, if you wanted to walk it, it is 1,376 kilometers. Let's see if you wanted to drive. Is, is that is that via the ferry, or do you, does it look like it's taking a different crossing? Uh, it's taking a different it, it's taking a different crossing because you can walk through the Huangi or the Huangge National Park, so there is a trail there. And uh, unfortunately, 
the the alternate route, which is through Zimbabwe, is 22 hours to get to Gabrone, where it's only 18 hours uh, going through Kasane and across this very crossing. So it's only it's only four hours longer to avoid the crossing. But I don't know if it's I don't know. Maybe if, there's a worse crossing. Well, the thing is, if the crossing takes four days, I don't think that's being factored into this 18 hour trip. Right. So I'm uh, I'm just saying the other crossing must be just as problematic if people are still doing the four the four week one or whatever. Well, it is. because the other crossing is basically to drive all the way across Zimbabwe. Oh, okay. which seems like its own reward, but also its its own its own punishment. We also heard from uh, Matt, a uh, Ontario resident who does not seem angry about me tweaking Blue Jays fans or about us saying Windsor, Canada. He's, right, Matt's just a chill, chill dude. He's the delightful, polite sort of Canadian. Right. Thank you, Matt. And he has many stories about Ambassador Bridge because he lives 40 minutes from the border. And he tells a story about a friend of mine who does not drive, but wanted to go to a Steely Dan concert in Detroit. This is a relatable situation. How many of us have wanted to go to a Steely Dan concert, but realized we do not know how to drive? Um, and the bu- and he was on a bike, but the bus service, once he got to the border, the bus service wouldn't let him put his bike on the bus. Okay. And there's no bike lanes on the bridge. So he decided, if you'll recall, there's a tunnel. He decided to bike through the tunnel. Right. Halfway through the tunnel, he realizes there's no traffic anymore. And he f- tries to figure out what's going on. He sees <laughs> a, the authorities are behind him in a car. A, a, t- a car has been dispatched to tail him into America and gets to the American side only to find a line of scary looking guards uh, <laughs> wondering what he has in mind by biking through the tunnel. Apparently, they were actually pretty cool once he told them he just wanted to, s- to hear Steely Dan. Sure. To hear their relaxed brand of of 70s rock. Right. Um, he was let go and managed to get to the show, which took, you know, biking through miles of possibly Canadian unfriendly parts of Detroit <laughs> to finally get there. And it was, uh, it was actually pretty big news in the Windsor Star, which is the biggest newspaper of Windsor, Canada. <laughs> <laughs> it's a student newspaper. And that concludes... The Omnibus Project Addenda, Volume 3. Futurelings, we thank you for your financial pledges that have made this monumental project possible. We hope that access to these important addenda items has validated your decision to support the Omnibus. It is vitally important that you attach these updates to the original recordings you discovered in their proper context for the convenience of future browsing by your civilization. We hope that our civilization survives long enough for us to provide you with future addenda to the omnibus. Mm-hmm.